Welcome to Creating Your Genius. Artlist.io Welcome back to another episode of Creating Your Genius. In this episode, I want to go into using fats as energy. Last time it was carbohydrates as energy and the mitochondria. And this time, still going to be a little bit of mitochondria, but we're going to go into how we use fats for energy. This is going to be a very fun episode for my people who are on ketogenic diets. All right, let's dive right in. So fats, fatty acids, or lipids are different names that we use to call fats, and they are used in the body as an energy source, like I've gone over. They are essential for absorbing different vitamins, specifically vitamins A, D, K, and E. And these vitamins are called fat-soluble because we can only absorb them in the presence of lipids. Lipids also make up about 50% of our cell membranes, and they are used for long-term energy storage. We even have specific types of fat in our body called brown fat, that we use to help regulate our temperature, especially in cold weather. Something pretty interesting is that when you take a cold plunge or you take a cold shower or even if you're just out in the cold for extended periods of time, the levels of brown fat actually increase in your body. Fats are important for our ability to live. So let's dive into fat as an energy source. How does our body use it? Why do we store our energy as fat? And we'll get into some genes and essential nutrients that we need to make sure we use our fats efficiently. Fats are the most energy-dense molecule in the body. The reason why fatty acids are so energy-dense is due to their size and how they're broken down. Let's compare one molecule of stearic acid, which is a saturated fatty acid found in plants and animals that we often use as energy, to one molecule of glucose. The molecular formula for steric acid is C18H32O2, 18 carbons, 32 hydrogens, 2 oxygens. And the molecular formula for glucose is C6H12O6. There are two key differences here. First is that there are three times as many carbons in steric acid, and there are three times as many oxygens in glucose. By a general rule, how we incorporate our foods into the citric acid cycle is by converting the foods into something called acetyl-CoA, which I've touched on in the last episode. And acetyl-CoA is attached to a molecule called oxaloacetate, and that's how it is incorporated into the citric acid cycle. Acetyl-CoA is an acetyl group, two carbons and one oxygen, attached to coenzyme A. And this is where beta-oxidation of fatty acids comes into play. The process where long chains of fatty acids are broken down into acetyl groups and then added to coenzyme A is called beta-oxidation. And this happens through four enzymatic reactions, and it happens in the mitochondrial matrix. Unless you have a biochemistry test coming up, knowing the names of these enzymes isn't really important. 
The important thing to know here is that at the end of these four reactions, two carbons have been lopped off the fatty acid chain to make an acetyl group, and this acetyl group has been added to coenzyme A to make acetyl-CoA. The overall molecular products of this reaction is a total of one acetyl-CoA, one NADH, and one FADH2. When we compare glucose and steric acid, steric acid has the potential to produce nine acetyl-CoAs when it undergoes beta-oxidation of fatty acid because there are 18 carbons in this molecule and each time beta-oxidation is run, two carbons are taken off. And beta-oxidation is run until this molecule is completely broken down into acetyl groups. Comparing that to glucose, glucose creates two molecules of acetyl-CoA when it's run through glycolysis. And comparing the two through glycolysis to the nine in beta-oxidation is a pretty big difference. But the energy density of fatty acids and how much more energy they potentially contain than glucose doesn't stop there. During beta-oxidation, for every molecule of acetyl-A produced, like I said earlier, one NADH and one FADH2 are produced. And these happen directly during beta-oxidation, and they can go right to the electron transport chain, donate their electrons, donate their hydrogens. At the same time, the acetyl-CoA that's produced in beta-oxidation also runs through the citric acid cycle, which creates NADH and FADH2 on its own. So if you break down one whole molecule of steric acid, you can create about 120 molecules of ATP, where the oxidation of glucose only creates 30 to 33. So there's a big difference there. And based on the abundance of ATP that can be created through the breakdown of fats, it makes sense that we would want to store excess energy in the form of fat rather than sugar. When we need to tap into those emergency reserves, wouldn't it be better to get the absolute most energy out of them that's possible? Now knowing why we store fats, how energy dense they are, and the things produced when we break them down via beta oxidation, there is one question here. Why is a high fat diet called a ketogenic diet? This is something that's sort of poorly taught in biochemistry, and it makes sense because that class is more about the mechanisms of how things work rather than looking at really what happens when the body is using fats for energy and how it actually functions in practice. An important designation here is that not all tissues in our body can directly use fats for energy, meaning that they can't take a free fatty acid, put it through beta oxidation, and create the acetyl-CoA, NADH, and FADH2 from it. And specifically, our brain is unable to use free fatty acids to create energy. But the body has a workaround for this, and this workaround is ketones. Ketone bodies, or ketones, are created from fatty acids, and this is a process that's very dependent on insulin. When insulin is high, it's going to want to shuttle carbohydrates into our muscles or whichever cells are going to be using those carbs for energy. And by doing this, it blocks the enzymes that turn fatty acids into ketones. And this is one of the schools of thought that ketogenics could help with diabetes. 
because if you never stimulate insulin or you never have any need to stimulate insulin because the blood sugar always stays low or stable because you're just not eating foods that spike your blood sugar, you wouldn't really ever have to use insulin and that would mitigate the problem of having high blood sugar because you can't use insulin to get carbohydrates into the cell. So insulin is the main negative regulating hormone of ketogenesis, which is through the production of creating ketones. Because the brain cannot use free fatty acids as fuel, when we really go through long periods of starvation or we're eating only high fat food or we're eating at such a low level of carbohydrates, our body is going to end up shifting into producing a lot of ketones to allow the brain to continue to function. And that's going to be the reason why the ketogenic diet is called the ketogenic diet. Because at the end of the day, yes, our muscles can use free fatty acids for fuel, but when we get into these starvation states, the body is going to prioritize brain health and brain function. It's going to end up creating a lot of ketones. And this is just fine for our muscles because they're also able to use ketones. And so we're always producing a very small amount of them. And even during sleep, we start to produce a little more. Anytime that's between periods of eating, our ketone production is going to increase, but it's very insignificant. Hormones like glucagon, cortisol, thyroid hormones, and catecholamines like dopamine are all going to increase ketogenesis. Regardless of what types of fats our body is using for fuel, whether it's free fatty acids or ketones, there's a specific nutrient that is essential to get this process going. And this nutrient is carnitine. Ketogenesis and beta oxidation of fatty acids both take place in the mitochondria matrix. But before that, we need to get those fats into the cells and then from the cytoplasm of the cell into the mitochondrial matrix. Carnitine's main role is to link two fatty acid chains and allow them to enter the mitochondria. Think of carnitine as the key that allows fatty acids to enter the mitochondria. Without that key, they can't interact with the lock, and the lock is a protein called translocase, which basically recognizes carnitine and allows the complex of the carnitine plus the fatty acid chain called acyl carnitine to enter the mitochondria. Carnitine is something that we ingest and create. Its main dietary source is in animal products with ruminant animals having the highest concentration. So ruminants are going to be cows, bison, elk are three examples of that. In order for our body to carry out all the functions it needs, we need approximately 15 milligrams per day of carnitine. And this would be for a person who weighs about 165 pounds. So we can do the math to figure out what each person specifically needs or how much specifically they need based on that 15 milligrams a day for someone who's 165 pounds. Because carnitine is almost exclusively found in animal products, there is a worry that vegans and vegetarians may be at risk for low levels. The body is very smart about this. That risk is offset by our body increasing the synthesis. There's a study that shows or hypothesizes 
that 165-pound vegan can synthesize about 14.4 milligrams of carnitine per day. And that's, you know, just about going to get you to the, the need of 15 milligrams per day. This study, called The Effect of L-Carnitine Supplementation on the Body Carnitine Pool, Skeletal Muscle Energy Metabolism and Physical Performance in Male Vegetarians, illustrated that although free carnitine levels were lower in the vegetarians as opposed to omnivores, they did have similar creatine, uh, carnitine muscle stores. And this indicates that the body is becoming more efficient at storing carnitine when the circulating levels or dietary intake is low. And this is just another example of how intelligent the body is. There's always these mechanisms and feedback that our cells and genes are noticing and changing the way that they function based on that. Based on carnitine's importance for getting fats into the mitochondria, my personal opinion is that a high-fat diet would require a higher level of carnitine, as there would be more fatty acids being used for energy, more ketones also being used for energy, and this is going to require more carnitine. There is a specific gene called SLC22A5, which encodes for a protein called OTCN2. This protein is what allows free carnitine, which is going to be the level of carnitine that's circulating in your blood. And if you got a blood test and you tested your carnitine levels, that level that you would get back is going to be your free carnitine. This protein allows the free carnitine to get into the cells to be used. An important distinction is that this is not the transport protein that allows carnitine to link to fatty acids and transport them into the mitochondria. This protein is going to be more reflective of how much carnitine can get from the bloodstream into the cell. SLC22A5 variants are actually pretty common. There are over 60 known mutations in it that have been shown to lead to carnitine deficiency. A lot of these mutations are heterozygous, meaning one copy of the gene that you inherited from either mom or dad is the normal, and one copy is mutated. Instances where there are homozygous variants, meaning both copies of the gene are mutated, are very rare, and... This can be very severe and lead to a condition called PCD, primary carnitine deficiency, which manifests in infants and can be fatal. For the interest of the work I do as a health coach in this podcast, I'm looking at levels of dysfunction that are well below full-blown disease states. Because there are over 60 known variants, there could be heterozygous mutations on this gene that could slightly impair carnitine transport into the cells. And that would mean that there would be a slight carnitine deficiency. This probably isn't going to have huge ramifications, but it's possible that it could impair function a little bit. And especially in a case where the carnitine demand becomes higher when you're eating a ketogenic diet. So if someone has a few SLC22A5 mutations that they don't know about because they never had their genes tested, so their carnitine transport into the cell is less than optimal but still functional, 
and they start eating keto, and they feel terrible. And it's low energy, it's brain fog, it's all of these things that are sort of considered to be the keto crash, um, which is really common in people who just start it. This could be an explanation for that, is that they've got a few of these heterozygous SLC22A5 mutations, which are pretty common. They eat a high-fat diet, which requires more carnitine, and they just can't keep up with the demand. But there is good news. I'm going to give a case study first and then get to the good news. This study is called SLC22A5 Mutations in a Patient with Systemic Primary Carnitine Deficiency the first Korean case confirmed by biochemical and molecular investigation. So this case study is of a Korean child whose free carnitine level was almost 10 times below the median, and they found this just in a normal newborn screening test. This child was found to have two different heterozygous variants for SLC22A5, and of course was diagnosed with primary carnitine deficiency. Over the course of four weeks of carnitine supplementation, this child's level was restored to above the median, and this supplementation was continued through eight weeks. The carnitine level in the blood dropped from four to eight weeks. It still remained well within the healthy range and above the median. The patient, after the supplementation, showed a normal development course. And I think that's really important because this study illustrates that when there are mutations in the gene, giving certain compounds can increase the protein's activity and even restore function to a mutated gene. So because they didn't have to continue with carnitine supplementation and the level remained in normal range, it's possible that that first influx of carnitine given caused the response in the body to upregulate SLC22A5 to get this carnitine into the cell. And so my hypothesis is the SLC22A5 variant resulted in a dysfunctional OTCN2 protein. And when there were normal physiologic levels of carnitine, meaning just what this child could produce on their own, the dysfunctional protein couldn't get enough carnitine into the cells. And this could be causing a buildup of fatty acids in the bloodstream as there wasn't sufficient carnitine in the cells to get them into the mitochondria. By saturating the body with carnitine, it said to the body, it doesn't really matter if this OTCM protein is 40%, 60%, or 80% functional. We need more of it to keep up with the demand of the increased carnitine. And in the response, the body did exactly that, increasing the expression of SLC22A5, and that increased expression restored function. And it seems, based on the continued normal development of this child, that that increased function didn't return to dysfunctional levels when the supplementation was stopped. It actually made a somewhat permanent change. I want to apply this information to our lives. Let's say we start a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet and feel terrible. In either case, we are shifting from a mainly carbohydrate-burning state to a mainly fat-burning state. If we haven't done genetic testing, we don't know what our SLC22A5 genes look like. If you're feeling terrible, wouldn't it make sense to supplement with some carnitine to 
support our body's ability to break down fats. It might just help us get through that initial crash. There's a really interesting study that looked at people who had just started on a ketogenic diet. And what happened with these people was in the first month on this diet, their free carnitine levels absolutely tanked. And that's because they needed more carnitine to keep up with the increased fat burning. Eventually, the body figured this out and the levels normalized. But this part points to possibly using carnitine during the early stages of a ketogenic diet to help support the body as it changes to a mainly fat-burning state. And we can do this by increasing the SLC22A5 protein in response to carnitine supplementation. And the study with the Korean child illustrates that carnitine supplementation does in fact have the potential to increase this gene expression. Another example of this could be thinking about it in the lens of fatigue. This study called Can L-Carnitine Reduce Post-COVID-19 Fatigue? It mentions how there was decreased acetyl-L-carnitine serum concentration in people experiencing chronic fatigue syndrome. It also mentions how carnitine supplementation has been used for chemotherapy and chronic fatigue as a treatment. There have been some studies illustrating moderate benefits from carnitine supplementation for exercise performance, but a meta-analysis looking at many studies of a similar nature, being carnitine's impact on exercise performance, concluded that these benefits may not be significant. So based on this, it seems that carnitine is more effective during times when there's low energy due to stress, rather than as a performance enhancer. And that could be due to many different factors. This could be that our body looks to carbs first as fuel during intense exercise or short bursts of exercise rather than long term. Or the fact that this protein may be downregulated by things like stress or by infections and that the supplementation would help more to restore the function of the protein rather than try to use it to enhance the function of uh, an already fully functional protein. I do want to give a little personal experience here. A few years back, I was doing some experimenting with different supplements that I thought might be able to help my workouts. And I started using a supplement called Ribose Cardio from Research Nutritionals. I'm not trying to plug, I don't have any vested interest in this. It's just, you know, I'm being honest about what I take and what I've tried. And this product is one gram of L-carnitine and one gram of D-ribose. And D-ribose is a specific sugar. It's an analog of the sugar that's used to make ATP. And so I took this before workouts as an experiment. And I immediately noticed increased strength and energy in the gym. And I especially noticed this if I took it while fasting. Me having a better response to it when I was fasting could be due to the fact that my body was relying more on fats during my fast than at other times. I will say this was only in the context of strength training. Um, I did not use this and then go for a run or go out and play tennis or do 
more aerobic exercise. But I did have some really good experiences, especially with power and how I perceived how hard I was working. So it took me a little a little bit longer to get tired. I don't have, I, I've looked at my genetics and I don't have any SLC22A5 variants that are backed by research that shows that they lead to some form of carnitine deficiency. But I do have some that are variants, but they ha- there isn't sufficient research on them to make any claims. So this could mean that I have some slight issues, and they were supported when I took the carnitine, and that's why it helped me feel better during my workout. Clearly, for the breakdown of fatty acids, carnitine is vitally important. And going back to the ketone bodies earlier, ketogenesis takes place in the mitochondria of liver cells. So fatty acids are transported from the through the bloodstream and they end up in the liver where they are engulfed by the liver cells and carnitine is then used to get the fatty acids from the cell cytosol into the mitochondria where they can be converted into ketones. So we've got breaking down the fatty acids for energy, getting them into the mitochondria for ketogenesis. But once we make those ketones, how exactly do we process them? And how do we use them for fuel? This leads very nicely into the next gene I want to take a look at, which is called ACAT. ACAT stands for acyl-CoA cholesterol acyltransferase. Just going to say ACAT because that is quite a mouthful. This enzyme is very important for our ability to use fats as energy, and it's involved in converting both fats and proteins to acetyl-CoA. Like I've mentioned in past episodes, it is possible for us to use proteins for energy, but it's a very metabolically expensive process, and ideally not something that we're doing very much. Specifically, ACAT catalyzes the last step of the breakdown of ketones into acetyl-CoA. So this is our link between using ketones and breaking them down into acetyl-CoA for energy. ACAP is also important for the formation and storage of cholesterol in the body. And you know, if we go back to the full name, acyl-CoA cholesterol acyltransferase, that makes sense. Because our brains can only use either glucose or ketones for fuel, This ACAT gene is looking like it's going to be very important for our brain's ability to function when we're not burning glucose. Before going into ACAT's role in a healthy metabolism, I have to mention that ACAT is a little bit controversial because of its role in the storage of cholesterol in the body. This becomes important because the conventional model of thinking sees cholesterol as sort of the enemy, and cholesterol has been blamed for the deposition of plaques in arteries that lead to high blood pressure and other circulatory issues. For a long time, ACAT inhibition was actually a pharmaceutical target, but when these drugs were created, not only did they not have the cholesterol-reducing effects that they were supposed to, but they ended up being incredibly toxic to the adrenal gland. And part of the reason why they were 
toxic was because they decreased mitochondrial function. The role that ACAP plays in a healthy metabolism becomes a little bit clearer when looking at an ACAT knockout study and the role that it had on kidney cancer cells in rats. The thought was that inhibiting these cholesterol-producing enzymes would stop the cancer. However, when the cells were analyzed, it showed that these cells had reduced ACAT expression. And that means that they're not taking these fats and turning them into cholesterol. And they're also not breaking down these ketone bodies if they're making them. The study didn't mention anything about ketones or whether these cancer cells were producing any significant levels of them. The cancer cells had reduced ACAT expression. And this takes us back to an earlier episode, episode 2, when I talked about how glycolysis gets upregulated when the cells are in dysfunction. It gets upregulated during immune responses. It can be upregulated when there's high glucose, and upregulated glycolysis is definitely one marker illustrating that the cells are under stress. When glycolysis is running, fatty acids are not being broken down into energy or ketones because the body is prioritizing glucose. When glycolysis is high, the cells are trying to import more glucose from the external environment into the cytosol to burn as fuel meaning that it's going to upregulate insulin production. And as we know, insulin is the main negative regulator of ketogenesis. Based on the results of this study and the knowledge that glycolysis is upregulated when there's cellular dysfunction, it makes perfect sense that the enzymes promoting the breakdown of ketones would be inhibited when glycolysis is running at such a high rate. This is illustrated in... A specific study talking about some of the mechanisms of cancer and why they rely on anaerobic glucose burning for fuel. Going one step further, the study analyzing the ACAT expression in the kidney cancer cells was able to determine that we could actually predict which cells were going to turn cancerous based on their level of ACAT1 expression. The study speculates that when there's reduced ketone breakdown gene expression, there's also likely reduced ketone body production and lower levels of ketones. So clearly, our balance between burning fats and glucose is very important for cellular metabolism and keeping dysfunction at bay. When there's too much dysfunction, glycolysis is going to get upregulated because the cell senses danger and is going to prioritize that quick energy. That's also going to make insulin rise as those cells suck more glucose in from the external environment. And it was very interesting learning that they could predict which cells were going to become cancerous by their ACAT expression. But it makes sense because those cancer cells are going to be prioritizing glucose burning. Another confounding factor about ACAT is that it seems to play a role in the formation of foam cells, which are implicated in the formation of plaque. And these foam cells are immune cells that get saturated with cholesterol. When they become so cholesterol full, it ends up making them basically like foam. TNF-alpha, an inflammatory cytokine that I've spoken about before, has been shown to stimulate a cat one activity. 
this duality of ACAP where it's important for breaking down ketones and it's inactivated when there is cancer and dysfunction, but is also implicated in the formation of home cells and plaque deposition, illustrates the importance of how our environment and genes interplay. A good example of this comes from a study looking at the types of fat consumed and how they impacted ACAT expression. Omega-3 fats found in fish oil ended up decreasing ACAT expression, and omega-6 fats, which are found in things like nuts and seeds, actually led to an increased expression of ACAP and led to increased cholesterol storage. There could be many reasons for why omega-3 and omega-6 fats had different effects on ACAP. One could be that maybe omega-3 fats are very inefficiently turned into ketone bodies. There would be no need for breakdown of ketones if we're not able to convert those omega-3 fats into ketones. And the same thing could be said for cholesterol, where omega-3 fats aren't converted into cholesterol efficiently. And that's going to signal less need for ACAP. This information all just illustrates the delicate balance that our body's operating in. There are situations where ACAT can be bad when there's too much of it. At the same time, you know, we're learning more and more about the roles that cholesterol plays in the body and that high cholesterol or high levels of specific cholesterols may not be as bad as we once thought and that there are other factors besides just the level of cholesterol that are going to impact the health of the cholesterol. Regardless of ACAT's role in the formation of foam cells and its implications in high cholesterol, it is vitally important for our ability to break down fats for energy. And because of its role in breaking down ketone bodies into acetyl-CoA, our brains would not be able to function without ACAT. And evolutionarily, because we went through periods of starvation where during those times we were only using fats and ketones for energy, we wouldn't have been able to survive those periods of starvation. To put this into the perspective of how it affects us in our daily lives, there hasn't been much shown besides increased fat consumption that's going to stimulate ACAP. While there aren't going to be any recommendations specifically for how to upregulate this gene if you may have variants, it is good information to know this is one of those genes that gets upregulated when you eat high fat. When you're on a ketogenic diet, this is one of those genetic buttons that you are pushing. You're telling your body, I need to use ketones for fuel, and your body's going to respond by increasing ACAT expression. Both ACAP and SLC22A5 are two essential genes that play roles in taking fats and converting them into energy. Without either one, our mitochondria would have a very hard time functioning. And as noted with ACAT, the types of fats we consume can impact their function. After learning about carnitine's importance for getting the fats into the mitochondria, 
and ACAT's ability to break down ketone bodies into acetyl-CoA, I want to shift gears and talk about two nutrients that are essential for our body's ability to break down fats and use them for energy. The first one is pantothenic acid, or better known as vitamin B5. The reason why vitamin B5 is so important for fat utilization takes us back to the molecule acetyl-CoA. I've talked about the acetyl group and how it's two carbons and one oxygen, and this acetyl group is picked up by coenzyme A to create acetyl-CoA, which is then incorporated into the citric acid cycle that allows us to create an abundance of NAD and FAD so that we can create energy. B5's importance comes from the fact that it is the precursor for coenzyme A. There are a few steps involved in taking B5 and creating coenzyme A out of it. And there's a gene called pantothene kinase, or PANK, that is the rate-limiting step in the synthesis of coenzyme A. So PANK takes B5 and, using ATP, puts a phosphate group on that B5 to start the synthesis of coenzyme A. It's very similar to PFK, or phosphofructokinase, for glycolysis. Once PANK gets activated, the B5 has committed to becoming coenzyme A. Based on the essential role that coenzyme A plays in the body, it would make sense that PANK genetic variants could be really troublesome, and PANK dysfunction has been associated with neurodegeneration. This condition is called PKAN, PANK-associated neurodegeneration. And it's really interesting that PKAN shares a lot of traits with dementia in older patients. This sounds a little scary, but PCAN is a very rare condition and is usually picked up in children. I'm highlighting it to show how important PANK function and coenzyme A synthesis is for our ability to produce energy. The link to neurodegeneration is noteworthy because at its core, neurodegeneration happens when the brain cannot produce enough energy to maintain itself, leading to metabolic dysfunction in the brain and the formation of plaques as well. So why would you care about pantothenic acid or PANK? Well, B vitamins are essential, meaning that we do not synthesize them in our own body and we have to get them from diet. And our lifestyle is going to determine the amounts of pantothene that we need. Because of its role in breaking down fats for energy, a ketogenic diet is like going to likely increase the need for B5 as we produce more acetyl-CoA from breaking down an 18-carbon fatty acid than we do from breaking down one glucose molecule. An interesting study called Therapeutic Approach with Commercial Supplements for Pantothenate Kinase-Associated Neurodegeneration with Residual PANK2 Expression Levels found that pantothenate, pantothene, which are two different forms of B5, vitamin E, omega-3 fatty acids, L-carnitine, and thiamine, increased PANK2 expression in the mutant PKAN cells with residual PANK2 expression, meaning once the treatments were stopped, that 
the PANK2 expression persisted. And there are a few nutrients in here that are probably sound pretty familiar, like carnitine and thiamine, which we've looked at before. An important note about this study is that it was done in culture cells, so we don't know exactly how that is going to translate to the human body. But clearly, they do have an impact on the expression of the PANK genes. For pantothene or pantothenate, this mechanism is probably similar to supplementing carnitine for SLC22A5, where increasing the substrate, B5, the thing that PANK acts on, stimulates the expression of the PANK gene to keep up with that demand. For L-carnitine, one of the reasons why it may upregulate PANK expression is through an increased availability of fatty acids that need to be broken down as carnitine transport them into the mitochondria. Because PANK is the rate-limiting step in producing coenzyme A, if the downstream need for coenzyme A increases, it will send those signals upstream to that starting point to tell PANK, hey, we need more coenzyme A, which in turn will increase its expression. And this is why I like to focus on those rate-limiting steps, because these are the steps that really regulate what's going to happen in these pathways. One of the nice things about all these nutrients is that we get them in our diet, especially if we eat animal proteins. Fatty fish is a great source of omega-3s and vitamin E. Ruminant animals are the best sources for carnitine, thiamine, and pantothene. In my opinion, vegans and vegetarians should at least consider supplementing with some of these B vitamins, especially if they eat a high-fat diet. I'm not really here to tell anyone what to do. I just look at the nutrients, the roles they play in the body, see where the highest concentration dietary sources are, and then draw conclusions that I believe are the most coherent from that information. And because of the limited availability of pantothene, thiamine, and carnitine in a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet, it may make sense to get a little extra to help support your body. For people on ketogenic diets, even those who eat animal protein, it may actually be beneficial to supplement with some of these B vitamins and carnitine. If you feel that keto crash early on in the process of starting the diet, it could be from your body just not having enough bioavailable cofactors to make burning fat efficient. Like that earlier study I mentioned when talking about carnitine, the levels tanked when they started keto, but they eventually jumped back up. Knowing what we know about all of these cofactors and their importance for our ability to break down fats, if you don't need to take that hit, why should you when there are things that you can do to help your body? So if you are trying keto and you feel terrible at the beginning, maybe try some B5 and carnitine and see if that helps. The next nutrient I want to take a look at is one of my absolute favorites. I've been studying this for a little while and riboflavin or vitamin B2 has a ton of fascinating roles in the body. It is a heat-stable, water-soluble vitamin 
that the body uses to metabolize carbohydrates, fats, and proteins into glucose for energy. In addition to boosting energy, this vitamin functions as an antioxidant for the proper functioning of the immune system, healthy skin, and hair. And that quote comes from a study called riboflavin deficiency. Beyond that, Riboflavin is very important for supporting a process in the body called methylation, which is fascinating in its own right. Riboflavin has a ton of roles in the body, clearly, but I want to focus on the role that it plays in fat metabolism. I could probably dedicate an entire episode just to all the different things that riboflavin does in the body. There's one particular part of the word riboflavin that may sound familiar, and that is the flavin. FAD, or flavin adenine dinucleotide, is one of the electron carriers that I've talked about that is essential for the electron transport chain. In the context of fats, it becomes especially important because during the beta oxidation of fatty acids, approximately eight times more FAD is produced than when we burn glucose for fuel. So we need enough riboflavin to make these FADs to carry electrons for a mitochondria. And this process of taking riboflavin and turning it into FAD has a gene involved in it called RFK. This gene phosphorylates riboflavin to FMN, or flavin mononucleotide, and gets it one step closer to becoming FAD. When I'm working with clients... When I see variants on this gene, I make sure that they're taking a specific form of vitamin B2, which is called riboflavin 5-phosphate. R5P is actually just another name for flavin mononucleotide. So when you take this form, it bypasses the RFK step, and that's why I use it for people with variants, because they might not be able to phosphorylate the plain riboflavin quite as efficiently. From a cost perspective, R5P is just about the same as other B2s that you might be taking. So even if you don't know your genetics, it might be a good idea to just do R5P instead of others because that way you make up for any potential genetic variants that you just don't know about. Because of FAD's importance, for accepting hydrogens and electrons from the fatty acids broken down during beta oxidation, riboflavin deficiency led to a decreased capacity for beta oxidation of, of fatty acids and eventually led to the development of fatty liver in rats. In another study, it was shown that rats who were fed a riboflavin deficient diet were shown to have 41% lower FMN levels and 35% lower FAD levels in their liver cells. And remember, the liver is the main site of breakdown of fatty acids in the body because that's where they're transported to be turned into ketones. These rats also showed signs of liver cell stress, meaning that riboflavin, because of its ability to be an electron carrier and acceptor, allows us to break down fats efficiently. And when they're not being broken down in these rats who weren't being fed enough riboflavin, those fats could have been backing up. And when there is an accumulation of fats in cells, much like the foam cells 
with the cholesterol that I mentioned earlier, it causes stress on the cells. Based on the research that I did, it seems that the main function of riboflavin for fat metabolism comes from its role in being a precursor for FAD. And the RFK gene is a very important step for the process of riboflavin becoming FAD and supporting that with R5P supplementation when doing B2s is important. In the context of a high-fat diet, you're definitely going to use more riboflavin because you're going to be making more FAD through the beta-oxidation of fatty acids. Making sure that you have enough of these cofactors is vital. There's going to be a trend here that you're probably seeing, and animal protein sources have the highest dietary levels of riboflavin, but there are also fair amounts found in spinach and almonds as well. So not to fear vegans and vegetarians. That was quite a bit of information in this episode. Breaking down fats is a very complex process in the body, but very important. And especially for people who are on ketogenic diets, this information can be really helpful. When you eat this way, you're changing the way your body burns fuel for energy because glucose is the more readily accessible version of fuel that the body wants to use. So shifting to fat burning, this new way of eating causes the body to use different materials to make the cofactors necessary to allow us to burn fats efficiently. You're going to need more carnitine to get fats into the mitochondria. You're going to need more B5 to keep up with the demand of the acetyl-CoA being produced in beta-oxidation and more riboflavin to make FAD, all of which are essential for allowing your body to use fats and feel good while doing it. Even for non-keto people, you definitely still need these nutrients for healthy function. And our body is going to be shifting into fat-burning states at some points of intense exercise and when we sleep. And knowing how your genes are going to change based on that is interesting. I hope this information serves you well, and I will see you next time on Creating Your Genius. Your Genius.